My name is John Sylvester. I'm a reporter with The Age newspaper. Some people call me Sly of the Underworld. There are 8 million crime stories in the naked city. And this is one of them. The law had only been in place for one day when lawyers for the man who always maintained his innocence made an application for a sentence indication from the Supreme Court. The question the lawyers asked to the judge was, what if our bloke pleads guilty? What will he get? Jason Roberts was facing a retrial for the 1998 murders of police officers Sergeant Gary Silk and Senior Constable Rod Miller. Scores of police converged on the area shortly after 12.30 this morning. Amid reports, two officers had been shot down. What we're looking at is um, the closest address to where the shots were fired. It's understood the two officers, who were involved in an ongoing armed robbery investigation, were fired upon as they approached a small dark-coloured vehicle on Cochrane's Road, Moorabbin. Sergeant Gary Silk was pronounced dead at the scene. His colleague, Senior Constable Rodney Miller, who suffered gunshot wounds to the chest, was rushed to Monash Medical Centre, where he later died. Representatives for Roberts applied in the Supreme Court under new rules. The first application of its type for what is known as a sentence indication. The law, under the Criminal Procedure Act, allows a trial judge to set a theoretical maximum jail term before a trial if the accused pleads guilty. Of course, a request for a sentence indication is not a formal plea of guilty. Without admitting anything, Robert's legal team asked if the accused man does plead guilty to the murder of Silk, but not Miller, and 10 armed robberies, what will be his likely sentence? Police, the Office of Public Prosecutions, and the victim's families were all notified, which is a requirement under the new law, and were prepared to accept the proposed deal. By accepting a guaranteed maximum term, Roberts would have avoided a potential life sentence under laws effectively banning police killers from being released on parole. Now, this was not an exercise in window shopping. It was a formal process that involved more than a week's hearings held in secret that included witness impact statements and evidence reminding the court the accused was just a teenager when this all happened and that he was manipulated by an older offender. But when the sentence indication was 40 years, five to seven years more than some had anticipated, Roberts chose to exercise his rights to a jury trial. And in July, he was acquitted of the murder charges. The marathon retrial lasted more than three months and included almost 100 witnesses. After four days of deliberations, the jury found Jason Roberts not guilty of the murders of Sergeant Gary Silk and Senior Constable Rodney Miller. One of the jurors wiped away tears as gasps rang out from the public gallery. Someone cried out, no. Carmel Arthur, the widow of Rodney Miller, bowed her head and closed her eyes. The jury heard from 91 witnesses, but they didn't hear from one an inmate who was at the Melbourne Assessment Prison when Jason Roberts was first arrested. We will call him Dave. Dave contacted me on the day Roberts was granted his appeal and said certain things that the prosecution was keen to explore. But in the end, he simply wouldn't testify. Dave, who was charged with murder and later convicted of manslaughter, 
was in the Melbourne Assessment Prison when Roberts was arrested in 2000. He remembers Roberts as a frightened kid. Very quiet, very shy, a bit like a deer in the headlights. He was just horrified of the whole situation, I believe. Yeah, he was uh, very nervous. We sort of showed him the ropes, give him his evening meal, his sugar and his coffee. Talk to him and as you would talk to anybody else, no jail talk or anything else to him, just talk to him as another human being. You'd see him walking around, um, bits and pieces. Um, I don't know whether he had a job as a billet or anything else there. I don't know what he did. But, yeah, you, being such a small place, you'd run into people on and off all the time. So why wouldn't he talk to police? David's done his time and has a new life. Many of the people in that new life don't know of his past and he wants to keep it that way. A Supreme Court trial is equal parts theatre and forensic examination, where the most awful events and darkest secrets are dissected in a mostly public process. It's based on one simple premise. If the correct evidence is put before a jury, that jury will come to the correct conclusion. This means much of the work for a trial is done without the jury present, when the judge makes dozens of decisions on what evidence is admissible. A wrong decision can open the way for an appeal on the basis that the jury was not provided with a balanced account. Days can be spent defining moments and words spoken under white-hot stress examined in the cool light of day. In 2002, Roberts and Bandali Debs was convicted of the murders of Silk 34 and Miller 35, who were ambushed in Cochrane's Road, Moorabbin, while on stakeout duty searching for two men who'd committed a series of armed robberies. Bandali Debs and Jason Roberts were expressionless as the jury on its seventh day of deliberations pronounced them guilty. Only the pale complexion of the younger killer betrayed the gravity of his feelings. But others in the court gasped, clapped and hugged. Widow Carmel Miller wept along with Gary Silk's mother. Even investigators were teary-eyed. It's um, an enormous sense of relief. What we were delivered today was the only possible outcome that we could live with. No, justice has been done. Debs and Roberts were planning an armed robbery of the Silky Emperor restaurant when they were intercepted by Gary Silk and Rodney Miller. Sergeant Silk was shot by the teenage bandit before he could take his gun from its holster. Senior Constable Rodney Miller, the father of a newborn boy, fired back but was shot at by Debs and wounded. As he staggered from the scene, Debs shot the sergeant twice more. Before he died, Senior Constable Miller was able to say a dark Hyundai was involved. Debs' defence claimed he was a victim of a police conspiracy which involved planting glass in the Hyundai, while Roberts' counsel said there was a lone gunman. Nineteen years later, Roberts won a retrial after the Court of Appeal found his conviction was tainted by police malpractice. The second jury listened to evidence that lasted nearly four months and had five COVID-related interruptions. They were diligent, with many taking copious notes. Trial Judge Stephen Kay observed the jury was, quote, the most durable I've ever seen, unquote. At the trial's conclusion, he excused them from ever having to sit on a jury again. 
they took four days to decide. No one could doubt their commitment. To understand Robert's arrest, conviction, retrial and ultimate acquittal, we must look at two laws, one good and one bad. First, the bad. Roberts was the victim of a miscarriage of justice, but not by the courts, by the state government, which passed a law designed to be tough on police killers, but which actually sabotaged the justice system. When Roberts was first convicted, trial judge Justice Phil Cummins sentenced him to life with a minimum of 35 years, believing the young offender should be given a chance at rehabilitation. He sentenced Debs to life with no minimum because he knew Debs would never change. Debs groomed Roberts to be his armed robbery apprentice. Roberts was just 17 at the time of the police murders and was clearly manipulated by a man he saw as a father figure. Debs, by the way, has since been convicted of two more murders. In 2016, the government changed the sentencing act banning police killers from seeking parole unless chronically infirm and no longer a risk, effectively throwing out Cummings' judgment and sentencing Roberts to life. On any level, this was manifestly unfair and allowed politicians to hijack the sentencing process. But then there is the good law that a case can be reopened if new evidence is unearthed. In late 2012, respected veteran homicide investigator Detective Senior Sergeant Ron Iddles undertook to review the evidence that led to Robert's conviction. This was one of the strange developments in a case stained with tragedy, mystery, controversy, and one where we will really never know the actual truth. While you're here, take the time to subscribe to The Age or Sydney Morning Herald. Serious journalism takes a serious commitment. Take our own Nick McKenzie. I went to lunch with him and he left the office on the phone and didn't get off it for the entire time. Luckily, it was Vietnamese and he could eat it with one hand using chopsticks. I had the fish noodle soup. It was yummy. For years, Roberts had maintained he was innocent, that he had pulled a series of stick-ups with Debs, but was not with him when the two police were killed. Years earlier, a lawyer acting for Roberts had approached the then Chief Commissioner Simon Overland with an offer. His client would identify his former crime partner Debs as the killer in a series of unsolved murders if the Chief undertook to review Roberts' case. Overland was underwhelmed. He would not look at Robert's case on a promise. Sign up for an affidavit with the facts on the unsolved murders and take your chances. The police offer was rejected with a torrent of abuse. In 2012, another lawyer acting for Roberts tried a different approach, going to the Office of Public Prosecutions with a similar story. Perhaps because the Chief Commissioner's door appeared to be closed, the OPP liaised directly with Idles who was then in charge of the Cold Case Homicide Unit. 
For the OPP to approach a senior sergeant directly without formally and in writing approaching the Chief Commissioner is simply bizarre. Idles was liked and trusted at the top end of the prosecution branch and was someone they believed would never be involved in a cover-up. But there is something that doesn't sit right with this. Why would Idles, or indeed any serving police officer, drop what they were doing to listen to Roberts, convicted decades earlier? Sure, Roberts had changed his story from the version he'd given at the first trial, but it reeked of desperation, of trying to rewrite history. So why Idles? Because the issue of Roberts' guilt or innocence was only one part of the story. The then convicted police killer was offering a juicy carrot for his case to be examined. If you agree to look at my case, I will give up my former partner, Bendali Debs, as perhaps Australia's worst serial killer. If Roberts was to be believed, Debs could have killed at least 11 people. Now remember, he'd already been convicted of four. Idles was the head of cold case killings. Roberts' claims came directly under his area of investigation. Also, it was well known that Idles was talking to convicted criminals. He'd been into prison time and again to talk to killers regarding unsolved cases. The head of homicide, Detective Inspector John Potter, was told of the probe, and it was authorised. Roberts was claiming Debs was a serial killer who told him he couldn't even remember how many people he'd killed. After Debs was found guilty of the murder of the two police, he was convicted of the murders of Donna Ann Hicks, 18, in Sydney on April 21, 1995, when he abducted her from the Great Western Highway. Her body was found near a quarry. Now remember that fact. The fourth murder was Christy Harty, 18, abducted on June 17, 1997, from the Princess Highway, Fountain Gate. Remember that location. Roberts alleged Debs had dropped information that some police believe could only be known by the offender, including the Tynon North killer responsible for three and possibly four murders. In December 1980, the remains of three female victims were found off Brew Road, Tynong North, near a disused quarry. They were Catherine Hedlund, 14, abducted on the Princess Highway on August 28, 1980, and she was heading to Fountain Gate, the same spot where Christy Harty was last seen, Anne-Marie Sargent, who was abducted on the Princess Highway on October 6, 1980, Eartha Miller, 73, was abducted from a train stop at High Street, Glen Iris, on August 10, 1980. They were found near a quarry, just like Donna Hicks. Robert said Debs pointed to a spot at the Princess Highway, saying that was where he grabbed a young woman, and to steal a ring, he had to cut her finger off. It was the bus stop where Hedlund went missing. He talked of laying bodies side by side until police found them. Debs lived just off the Princess Highway and was directly in the killing field and we now know was an opportunistic killer abducting women from the street. He was caught on police bugs during the Cochrane's Road investigation, codenamed Operation Lorimer, instructing Roberts on the best way to kill a woman. Quote, if you put the rod in the mouth and blew her brains away, when you put the rod in their mouth and close their mouth, there's no noise. I've seen it. I've done it. In 1983, the bodies of Naramel Stevenson, 34, was found in the same area of Tainong North. 
She was abducted from Brunswick on November 28, 1980. At the same time, two women, Alison Rourke and Joanne Summers, were abducted from bus stops in the Frankston area and murdered. Roberts also alleged Debs was the killer of Sarah McDermott, 23, abducted on July 11, 1990, from the Kenanook Railway Station. Roberts said when they passed the station, he referred to grabbing the Scottish girl, later saying she was a real fighter. Roberts gave information implicating Debs as the police paddock's killer, where Rodney Mitchell was shot dead in Roval in May 1983. Roberts' information implicated Debs as the suspect for killing two women, Margaret Penny and Claire Acox, in 1991 at a Portland hairdresser's. It all sounded good, but Roberts lacked evidence. In 2018, James Dobby pleaded guilty to the police paddock's killings. However, during the investigation, Idles started to believe there was something wrong with Roberts' conviction over the murder of the two police. His bosses gave him the green light to have a look at the case, but instructed him to liaise with the initial investigators. The head of the squads at the time was Superintendent Paul Sheridan, who'd been the officer in charge of Lorimer, the task force that investigated the Silk Miller murders. Sheridan is a man with a reputation for being stubborn, a stickler for the rules, and a police officer of the highest integrity. But there was a flaw in Lorimer's evidence, and that came into existence under Sheridan's watch, but without his knowledge. Lorimer included 30 detectives. It reviewed over 5,700 information reports, conducted over 2,600 vehicle inspections, investigated over 3,000 persons of interest, took approximately 3,100 statements, listened to over 21,000 hours of listening device recordings and over 18,000 intercepted phone calls. The brief of evidence comprised approximately 8,000 pages, 177 compact discs and included 484 witnesses. A committal hearing ran for seven weeks, followed by a trial of 115 days where 157 prosecution witnesses gave evidence. For a Chief Commissioner, the worst nightmare is the thought of losing a member to murder. The then Chief Commissioner, Neil Comrie, was woken to be told he'd lost two. Sadly, it's something that I'll never forget. It was in the early hours of the following morning that I received a telephone call at home from then Deputy Commissioner Graham Sinclair that was without any shadow of a doubt, uh, the worst thing that I could have possibly have expected to experience as Chief Commissioner at that time. I was advised that both members were deceased and uh, the investigation was uh, just starting to get underway at that point in time uh, regarded as two murders. There were some clear messages that came out of the aftermath of the, uh, the initial incident. Uh, the main thing being that we needed to have a very clear command scenario with a reporting line where one senior officer was in charge of the investigation, reporting through the command uh, ultimately to me. 
that was not something that had occurred in the previous matter and uh, caused some concern during and after that investigation. My wife and I actually visited both of the families in the immediate aftermath of the event and expressed our sincere sympathy to them and offered them all the support that the force could offer. And the one thing that struck us was the downright decency of the families and their stoicism and uh, their understanding of the uh, gravity of the situation and yet uh, being prepared to do whatever was required to support the investigation. It was a very, very difficult time, but as a leader, you just simply need to uh, try and maintain your composure as best you can, but what might have been seen on the outside certainly wasn't reflected of what was going on on the inside. Naturally, um, it would have been a relief to get a an earlier resolution to the matter, but uh, I was kept well briefed on where the task force was going and the uh, particular directions they were taking. I had absolute and still have absolute confidence in the leadership of uh, Paul Sheridan, the detective superintendent in charge of the uh, task force. So I was confident at all times that if uh, if there was evidence that would indicate those responsible for those murders, then the task force would ultimately find that evidence and uh, and disclose those responsible. I had absolute confidence and I still retain that confidence that uh, the evidence that the task force had gathered which led to the charging of both uh, people with those crimes was strong in my view. However, that uh, result for the second person may have turned out, I don't think, in my view, that's any reflection of the work that was done and the absolute commitment and dedication of the task force in bringing this matter to, uh, to a final solution. Roberts freely admitted to Whittles he was Deb's partner in the previous 10 armed robberies, but was not with him when Debs was looking at the Silky Emperor restaurant as a potential 11th target. Silka Miller were on surveillance duty, called Operation Hamada, looking for the two bandits robbing suburban soft targets when they pulled over Debs, who was driving his daughter, Nicole's Hyundai. Roberts told Idles he'd helped cover up the crime after the fact, but had not shot the police. Nicole Debs said Roberts was with her and they'd been out that night, although she couldn't remember where. Debs had been transferred to the Goulburn prison to serve his sentence for the Hicks murder. When police approached him, he said, tell Jason to do his time like I'm doing mine. This is an extremely complex case, and this is why the podcast will be over three episodes. This episode of Naked City was presented by me, John Sylvester. Production by Hannah Mills Turbot and Archive, thanks to Nine. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. Next week, episode two. So, until we meet again, this is Anthony Quayle saying... 
There is a touch of evil in all of us. Good night. Pleasant dreams. <laughs>